This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, this is Chase Masterson, host of the hit Discovery podcast, Disco Nights. Star Trek Discovery may not be back till next year, but rest assured, Disco Nights will be back this fall to talk the new Star Trek Picard series, as well as everything we hope and expect from Season 3 of Discovery, plus some other special surprises. Join me and our special guests when we return with all new episodes this August. Until then, Disco Lives! Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a Star Trek fan who thinks you know everything about the history of Star Trek, check out my best-selling two-volume oral history of Star Trek from St. Martin's Press, The 50-Year Mission, available wherever books, digital, and audiobooks are sold. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Welcome to another episode of Inglorious Trexperts. Today is Tour of Duty as we talk about the amazing things going up, uh, going on in upstate New York. Uh, the Enterprise is touched down for a landing. Far beyond the rim of the starlight, you will find. <laughs> <laughs> in a very unlikely place. Um and uh you know uh, what's what's going on there is pretty miraculous um and uh a gentleman by the name of, of James Cauley has opened up uh uh tours of the original Star Trek sets recreated originally for his fan films mm-hmm. which he subsequently uh w- working with uh, Darren Doctorman our very own Darren Doctorman licensed on out occasion, yes. um uh, the rights to do uh, tours of the original Star Trek sets in Ticonderoga, New York. Now, this is open to the public. It's open to the public uh, uh, from April through uh, late December of the year because of the, you know, the, uh, the weather. The weather in uh, upstate New York is Global very, warming very will fix difficult that, though. Uh, in, you know, January, February, and March. Um, but uh, it's every like other Sarpedon time of the year, up there uh, during the winter, the, the 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 death knells of Sarpedon. Uh, <laughs> but there is no library and no Mister Atos. No although, library. <laughs> <laughs> although you know it is it is a uh, a repository, <laughs> the Plants Act is a suppository. No, the it is a repository of all the information that you could possibly want about the original series and how it was back then. Yeah, and it's incredible. And and you recently sat down with uh, with James to talk about how this all came to be, um, his his experience doing the sets, and then of course he's played host to so many legendary Star Trek figures in the last couple of years. Uh, Bill Shatner, yeah, um, and uh, uh, Anson Mount was there for uh, uh, recently as uh, Captain the new Captain Pike. Uh, I guess uh, George and 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 uh, Walter have, have been there. there uh, Walter has and Michelle has. George hasn't yet, but uh, su- he's supposed to be uh, coming fairly soon. And uh, Carl Urban was there. Carl Urban was there, and uh, uh, Gates McFadden was there. And uh, you know who else was there? 
Our very special guest, Robert Meyer Burnett, was That's there. That's true. <laughs> I Robert was Meyer there. Burnett, welcome back. Thank you. You know, I have to say, uh, I, I'd known James uh, for, for a long time, and I had never been. The, the His sets were moved into that facility in Ticonderoga. Um, the first time I stepped in there, it was all, wasn't it like a five and dime store, Darren? It was. So it's got these glass swing out doors, but then you walk in and what you, what I saw immediately when I walked in was the bridge of the enterprise mm-hmm. and it's open. So you're looking into the, the, the bridge and even though it's in this five and dime store, as soon as you walked in there and saw the bridge, it was, you know, it was all lit up. It was insane. I mean, the feeling that you get when you look at this thing, because, and it was all there's, there's, there's. The, he's got animation on the different view screens, and the the things that were static on the original series are all moving. And I can't tell you what it was like. It it it, it was like you know whatever that cliche is stepping into your childhood and right. seeing these things. It, it truly was magical. It's, it's kind of like Charlie Bucket walking in into the into the chocolate, chocolate factory and, and and meeting Gene Wilder for the first time. <laughs> It's like that. It's funny. You know what? When you were there, it was still in sort of filming mode. Right. When when uh, they were doing uh, fan films and, and stuff like that. We were that. there to film. You were there to film. But since then, it has become more like a Disney attraction with staging areas and uh, a, a storyline. They, they have, the, they have the, uh, the hallway next to the transporter room. The doors are closed, and you can just see the back of the flats, and that's all you see. The rest is a little, um, oh. a little museum of uh, props and and costumes. Right, okay. But everything else is closed off, so you can't see anything else. You just see these red doors in front of you. And when they start the tour, they open the red doors, and you walk in, and you are on the Enterprise. Well, what's so crazy is the the lighting. Yeah, you've got the lighting of the original show there, and when you're standing. That where the transporter goes, and then you can mm-hmm. go off to the right yeah. where Kirk's quarters is and stuff. Right. You're you're standing. It's it's all around you. Yeah, like you are it, surrounded. You are immersed. You're immersed, you're immersed into. in it, and and the feeling that you get is so strange. Yeah, it's uh, wonderfully strange. And uh, <laughs> you know these are screen accurate recreations. They're even better than screen accurate because they're built better. They're they're painted better, arguably, and uh, but they're. You know, James, uh, for want of a better word, is completely anal retentive about detail and accuracy. He loves that thing. He he lives for it, and even down to the fabrics. Down to the he he met he met, he the found buttons. the fabrics, I mean, and when the fabrics weren't available, he had them made. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's unbelievable the the level of of um, obsession. Dare I say? Uh, sickly it's, sweet. It's, it's sickly sweet, like, like honey. <laughs> Dicoronium. Um, it's 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 really wonderful to share in his madness. I, I have to say, in this conversation uh, uh, between you and James Cauley that we're about to listen to, one of my favorite um, things that you guys discuss is that in the way that the Star Trek experience, which I want to talk to Rob about in a second, uh, took you to the future, mm-hmm. this takes you to the past. Yeah. That the Star Trek set tour... Uh, t- it takes you back to what it was like to be there in 1966, yeah. 1967, 1968, 1969. Uh, whereas the Star Trek experience in Vegas at the Hilton right. was all about giving you an in-universe experience. Now, Rob, you worked on the Star Trek experience in those very early days for Landmark Entertainment. Yeah. What can you tell us about that experience, which was a very <clears throat> different Star Trek set tour? Well, it was you know they it was the Next Generation set tour, and it was it was just after. 
I think I started in ninety in ninety six mm-hmm. on it. So, you know, Next Generation had been off the air for two years. And they had the museum portion where they had all Star Trek stuff, so there was classic stuff like they had Nomad recreated, for mm-hmm. instance. But one of the things about that, it was the same. I'll never forget the first time I went into that transporter room thing and was beamed on board right. the Enterprise. In a way, they did kind of the same thing where it really did feel like you got beamed somewhere. Because yeah. they, they had this counterweight, this like 50-ton counterweight thing that you'd go into this room that you thought you were in a regular room, and then the lights would flicker, and they would literally lift up the walls. Mm-hmm. And then the transporter room was outside the walls that you couldn't see when you walked in. So you're you're standing in this transporter room. It's all around you. And you've already felt this weird whoosh that's happened. You physically had a sensation. It was amazing. One, one it was of, unbelievable. And you're standing on the Enterprise sets. I mean, one of the guys that uh, uh, worked on that uh, was a, a very dear friend of mine that, who I taught with at Art Center called uh, Luke Mayrond. Who, yeah, oh, I, I, I saw Luke every day. Yeah. And and he was you know one of the creative uh, people doing this experience, and he he now works for Disney and is sort of in charge of uh, you know uh, Disneyland uh, and uh, and park stuff, but it's so much fun because he was a fan of Star Trek. Oh yeah, and he loved it, and his enthusiasm permeated the entire feeling of this experience. Oh, and I think James has done the same thing. I mean, it. Even though we went there to film, you know, right. to shoot a, a fan film, it's still like every time we weren't shooting, I'm just looking around like in my mind, I have music from episodes yeah. playing in my head. And I'm like, what scene happened? Here's where Kirk fought the fake Andorian in, right. in Elaine of Troyes, you know, and, and they had just built the, the engineering set when we yep. got there. Yep. And, and standing around this engineer, it's just it's such a weird thing to see something like this brought to life. In, in in you know every detail, just like the Epsilon Nine station was was was, <laughs> was, was stored by every detail. I mean, it's it's truly. If you love the original series and it it means something to you, uh, when and, you go there, you'll be dipped in magic waters. Well, yes, exactly, <laughs> and and that's what it was like. And it was just, and it was so cool because we were shooting in widescreen. We were mm-hmm. shooting in anamorphic widescreen, which you'd never seen classic Star Trek done before right. and I did this shot where we dolly around the bridge mm-hmm. where the, the right around the ex, the interior right in front of the the view screen and I I sometimes just play back that shot cuz no one's ever seen what we shot there. Mm-hmm. I play back that shot just for my own edification. Nice. I'm like, "Haha, I got to direct this shot and the bridge looks so good." Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny because we talked about the Star Trek experience um when we did our Borg episode. Right. We talked about but um you know, one of the things you created all the videos for the right. lobby when you arrived, and there was that giant Enterprise hanging over the, um, the lobby, and uh, it was um, it was really quite ex- extraordinary. Uh, well, you it was got super that s- fun. The same feeling when you stepped onto the the next generation bridge mm-hmm. in the Star Trek experience. It was kind of the same. It was thing. magical, it and was... I and I'm not a huge fan of next generation, but I felt it. But that bridge was basically a one to one scale recreation. Yep. It was 360 degrees, and when you're in there. Nothing betrayed your your in universe. What what felt like you're like I'm on the bridge of the Enterprise. What's great about it is even though you go through the whole thing, there are there's one just like it on the other side of the building. There's two mm-hmm. identical. Yeah. Or there was there was there was two yeah. identical setups. <laughs> yeah. right, there was. 
But that just shows you the sort of efficiency and the planning that went into doing this so that they could get enough people going through during an hour. Right. I mean, I uh, look, I'm so excited for Disneyland's Star Wars land and sure. being able to walk mm-hmm. on. But I can't imagine how they're going to deal with the throng of crowds that want to yeah. get into the Millennium Falcon cockpit yeah. that seats four people. It's going to be a madhouse. I mean, what's fun about going onto the bridge of Ticonderoga is to have all your friends manning a station. Yeah. You know, it's who gets to sit in the center seat? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's look. I haven't been there, but I'm looking forward to going up there at some point. Oh, you're going. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna go because um, you know, uh, you know. I've been on various recreations that are, and obviously, I was on the sets of Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, yeah, and Voyager. Yeah. But but but, <laughs> but I've never, I've never, you've been, never been there. You know, I've I like been the county fair. They recreated the Enterprise Bridge, and yeah, you know, but nothing like like this. And I, I definitely. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking it out. It really is is fantastic that James was able to take his passion and and translate into something that give back again so much to the Star Trek community because you know everyone who's been up there, including Bill Shatner, right. have had a wonderful, wonderful time. I've yeah. heard nothing but great things about this whole uh, experience. Well, what's so strange about it is it really is transporting. Yeah. Like even though you walk in through you know these glass doors that were in the any store you've been in a million times, and you walk. It's like it literally is going through the looking glass. Yeah. And when you stand there, it, it, it is it is a, a singular once-in-a-lifetime experience. It's okay. bizarre. Well, now let's uh, let's listen to uh, Darren Dockerman's conversation with James Cawley live in Ticonderoga, New York. Well, here I am with uh, James Cawley of the Star Trek original series set tour in beautiful Ticonderoga, New York, although a bit chilly this time of year. Yes, ridiculously chilly, and uh, unfortunately we had our big event, and it's the coldest weekend so far of the year. But that certainly didn't uh, uh, didn't stem any participation by the masses or by uh, our captain himself. No, it was an, uh, a really great, very you know crowded, uh, fun weekend. I mean, uh, we really didn't have to be outside very much, thankfully, so uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, I've known you for many, many years, and and uh, knew you from back in the in the before time with uh, the uh, wonderful fan films, etc., uh, New Voyages, and uh, uh, Phase Two, as it later became, then went back to New Voyages. You've been, you know, we're the same age, and we. Yeah. we Unfortunately, <laughs> I thought we were both still like like you know thirteen, twelve. Well, in our mind, our yeah, mind, that's yeah. fine. Uh, <laughs> but um, tell me a little about your uh, early uh, uh, childhood and first exposure to this thing that has taken over both our lives. Well, what I what I remember the most, um, and and I had to have been, you know, I want to say uh, five maybe uh, cause I don't know how back our memories go but uh, definitely very small and I remember being uh, uh, home and my brother um, had come home from school because of course he was older and, and uh, he came home ahead of me and he turned the television on I remember that vividly and this space show was on and they were uh, on a planet where uh, everything that they thought of came true and, you know, the, the big rabbit and the, the, all the, the shenanigans that were going on. And I remember just sitting there being glued to the television set. And it was actually my brother that said, oh, this is Star Trek. And um, he and I used to, uh, we were the first, first memory I have of playing Star Trek was with my brother. And we had a, one of those old Electrolux vacuum cleaners. 
you know, that you'd hook the hose to. And he used to take the hose off and stand it up. And that would be Spock's scanner. Could look down to the top of it, which is kind of funny. But that's like the earliest memory of Star Trek that I have. <laughs> and obviously, you know, we both watched the shows uh, when they were in syndication. Um, and watched it every night. Every day. Yeah, sometimes a couple of times a day because it was on uh, WPIX out of New York. And then we also got it, and I can't remember. I know at one point it was on Channel 3 out of Vermont, but it was also on um, Channel 8 that we got out of Maine. Well, I I know that, you know, uh, I used to, and I think you did too, record them off the air. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'd stack the encyclopedia up in front of the the speaker on the TV and put the little, you know... uh, uh, cassette recorder on and sit there and hit record and I still have uh, tapes with uh, you know my mom talking loudly in the background as uh, Nils Barris is uh, yelling at Captain Kirk it's uh, you know amazing memories that that stay with you forever ever and ever and ever yeah I remember trying to get everybody to hush and be quiet when it was on to no avail um, and the other thing that I remember getting was a little did you have one of the little pillow speakers that you could plug into the tape recorder you know i never had a real one but i did go to radio shack and buy a speaker and some wire and a plug and i made one (laughs) i remember saving my money i got this little white speaker that plugged into the tape recorder and put that under my pillow at night and i would go to sleep listening to them you know talking uh because we'd recorded the episodes it was just and i think that's how you and i learned the dialogue absolutely absolutely and and that's why a big chunk of our brain is useless now that's right because it's filled with star trek (laughs) It's, uh, it's it's a great way to be useless, though. But your your uh, fandom uh, sort of expanded uh, with your desire to be more creative. And I know that your uh, was it your grandfather that helped you build things for the first time, or how did that start? Yeah, I you know playing. You know, you want to be somehow or other in an environment. You want to be. You want to feel more like you're you're connected to it. So kind of sprung from that and uh, actually started with my dad. He, mm. he built me uh, a Kirk chair and a small console for the basement and then the wall of the basement as it went around. He actually took heavy um, – do you remember when we were in school? They used to make colored construction paper. Oh, sure. And he somehow or other got sheets of this, big sheets and rolls, and he covered the wall with blue and black and then cut out little – rectangles to look like the flashing lights and so when you went into my basement the wall as it went around was all this construction paper that kind of looked like the bridge with those two parts um and then when i got older uh my grandfather was pretty crafty you know he could build just about anything and um when i got those blueprints from from bill we started building one of the real consoles out in his uh barn workshop now, when you say Bill, you mean Bill Tice, who was the costume designer on the original series, and you got to know very well. I did. I just um, um, just before, I think I'm trying to remember the timeline here because we're both getting a little bit older. <laughs> uh, so it was probably somewhere as late '85 to early '86, somewhere in that area. Um, it was around Star Trek Four, I guess. They they had announced that they were going to do another uh, television show. They were going going back on the air. And um, I had always wanted a uniform, like the uniform, the Cadillac uniform. And you couldn't buy anything worth a damn in those days. No, there was nothing. There was nothing. Um, so I actually picked up the phone and called – I got the, called information. You know, back in those days when you had to actually call information and asked for a number for Paramount Pictures and I got the phone number. 
and called that phone number and asked for William Ware, and I think I pronounced it uh, Thies or mm-hmm. something, and they said, oh, you mean Bill Tice? And I said, yes, and they put the call through, and lo and behold, the man answered the phone. Now, I don't think that would happen today, no. uh, but he actually answered the phone. <clears throat> and I told him who I was and how old I was and where I was from, and we just struck up this conversation. And I don't know, something something that I said or how I approached him kind of sparked something in him as a kindred spirit about, you know, costumes. And the one thing I'll interject really quickly is that he never could understand why that uniform was so popular. Mm-hmm. He, he was never actually happy with it. It was a committee thing um, for simplicity. Wow. Um, but he, he gave me a bunch of things, you know, patterns and fabric samples and whatever he, you know, had at his disposal. And um, it was probably within six months, um, you know, I had built one and sent it out to him and he critiqued it and really thought I did a great job and then uh, sent me stuff for Next Generation uh, to make the, the jumpsuit. Now, bear in mind, that show really hadn't gone on the air yet. No. So um, I ended up having great conversations with him and then going out and, and doing some freelance jobs for him directly for the show. That's that's so cool. And, you know, so many of us who have sort of connected our fandom to professional work have stories like this yeah. where we where we try to reach the people that inspired us and try to make that psychic connection uh, to you know, to sort of expand our own worlds beyond the fantasy and make it into yeah, reality. I think it was, um, it was probably uh, Mike and Denise Okuda and Doug Drexler uh, who, you know, said that when we watch the show, there's this whole fictional world that we see and behind the scenes of that fictional world is this whole amazing re- real world that we don't get to see. And, and it's, it's some, for some of us, it's that real world that really draws us in even more. Absolutely. I mean, I you know, I enjoyed the stories, but when I first got the making of Star Trek book and started to read all these stories behind the stories, it just, exactly like you said, it's that real world thing that I was the most interested in. Yep, absolutely. Because the, the fact that, um, the fact that there were these people who were doing these jobs creating this fantasy that, that, I, loved. that I loved, that was entirely more intriguing and driving and uh, magnetic. Yep. And, and you see these things on television and then your mind starts to connect the dots. Well, this is how they do it. This is how it's done. How can I be a part of that? How can I be that creative? Uh, how, can I, how can I be a part of that universe? Exactly. And, you know, we, we both have talked about looking at other shows from that time period uh. and noticing little things here and there, not only, you know, uh, guest star actors showing up in various spots, but also pieces of furniture and set dressing and bits and pieces showing up everywhere that we recognize, oh, they use that there, too. Yep. And uh, it, it's just putting the little pieces together from tiny clues. Yeah. The whole making of television in the 1960s was such a different way of doing things than it is today because TV was disposable. They, you know, they didn't think anybody's going to be looking at this stuff 50 years later, but the creativity and the genius of these people, you know, uh, astounds me because these shows are so, not just Star Trek, but you know, all the, most of the shows from the 1960s are revered right. and they continue to find new life every damn day. Uh, so, for me, I mean, that's the kind of inspiration I try to take with me today. 
you know, how do they, how do they do things? How do they find new ways to get around these corners or go through these doors? So, well, that that's one of the reasons why I enjoy so much spending time with you and spending time at the studio tour, because not only is it a tribute to this imaginary show, it's not only a tribute to, you know, being on the USS Enterprise, which is a spaceship in fiction, but it's a tribute to the people that made it happen, the behind the scenes, the world of making this show. Yeah, you, I mean, to me, you feel like you're a part of the show. Because you're not, you know you're on the Enterprise, but you know you're on a set. Mm -hmm. And you get to see how the set was done and, and how, you know, I, I could go on for hours, but you get, you get what I'm talking about. It's, it's the, the tour, um, you know, unlike, say, Star Trek The Experience, Star Trek The Experience was all about how do we make you feel like you're in the 24th century. What we do here is, is not only put you in the 23rd century, but we also take you back in time and make you feel like you're in 1966. And to me, that's as, as important or, or more important than, than the fictional side of it. What's so amazing is that after, you know, after being on the set tour and walking around those halls and rooms, you look at the original show differently because, because you know now you've been there. Yeah, you know where they are every minute. You know how they did it. You know how, I don't want to say how little they had because they really had a lot, but, but uh, in terms of a ship that holds almost 500 people... They didn't build a whole lot to convince you that they had that much space. No, you're, it's amazing how efficient they were mm -hmm. with their resources yes. and yeah. how they had to be because even though it was the most expensive show produced at the time, the stories they were telling were so much bigger than what they had what and they, they had. had to make do yeah. with what they could. I get, you know, I get a little up at sometimes when people think Star Trek was a cheap show. I mean, when you look... If you could put your mindset, you know, in 53 years ago and what things cost and then look at the scale of the show and what they were trying to do, it really blows your mind. I mean, all, all you have to do, and, I, and don't get me wrong, I love Lost in Space too, just like you do. But if you look at the production design of Lost in Space, you go, well, they pulled that out of storage. Right. But if you look at Star Trek, it's like, where did they get that? They built it. Every little damn detail they, they you know. I think that's probably one of the things that got Roddenberry in trouble. You know, he, he slavishly, he'd get hooked on something. Well, if we're going to have this, why do we have this? You know, what's the technology behind it? So they had to come up with all this stuff and then make you believe that what they came up with was real. Right. And every week it was every something week. new. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at how many times the script would say, well, we need, we need environmental engineering. So then they would have to take the briefing room and gut it and make it environmental engineering. Or, you know, the brig would have to be set up or we'd have to turn the briefing room again into the rec room so they had to have all these different environments and they had to have a fast efficient way to give you believable environments yeah and it's it, it's just endlessly enjoyable and astounding to imagine being there back then and and you and i no matter how many times we've seen those episodes we'll still turn up something new like the other day you're, you and i are standing there with a the cage playing on the screen and you said, look at that, and tell everybody what you saw. Well, we were looking at the scene where they were transporting down to uh, uh, Talos Four, and I noticed that on the transporter pads, they weren't all one color. Yeah. They were like three colors. They were uh, three pairs of, uh, of colors. There was red, blue, and yellow. And I'd never noticed that before. No, me either. But it, but it does connect it to the unused test footage of the transporters that we've all seen where each person, 
their sparkles were a different color and sometimes they would have a solid line around them. So it, it's amazing to see that even the lighting was connected to what was going to be the special effect. Yeah, it, it's, it's so, what's so great about it is that it's so dense that even old fogies like us who have watched this stuff countless times can still find something new to discover and enjoy. Yep, yep. And that, you know, that, and I tell people this, you know, I, I really enjoy the sequels, all of them, particularly Next Generation, but I love the original. And for me, the original is not going to be dated and it is timeless because it's a flight of fancy. You look at that and it's pure science fiction from the production design to the way it was acted. You know, come on, we don't have spaceships with multicolored, you know, candy-like buttons that chains function with the way you push push them. But when you look at things like Enterprise or Discovery or or TNG with touchscreen interfaces, we have that already. So to me, those shows are the ones that are dated. Right. The technology is a little too close to home. Right. Because it's so it's abstract on TOS. That's right. And we don't understand what they're doing. Right. But they do. They, do. they seem to know exactly what they're right. doing. And how they can how they can look at uh, you know a light pattern on the, you know blinky pattern on a on a computer or a screen and know that that's uh, that the ship is telling them that they're orb five or whatever or when the captain gives an order they they punch in a sequence on those buttons and then when he gives them another order it's a different sequence and yet everything seems to work now we don't have technology that even begins to come close to that today and excuse my cat but he's <laughs> very fascinated with your phone right now <laughs> let's uh let's take a moment and talk about our uh favorite captain this is uh, this was his second uh, visit up here to Ticonderoga, and he had apparently an even better time than he did uh, last May. Um, tell a little about this journey. It, it sure seemed like he had uh, an even better time. You know, I told you the other day, if somebody had walked up to 12-year-old me and said, you're going to be able to host William Shatner uh, in your town, go out to lunch with him, uh, sit in a bar and watch him pour shots for everyone, and then walk around the Starship Enterprise talking and laughing and, and uh, having this communal experience, I would have said, you're out of your mind. Um, it's such a delight to grow up with him, worship him, really, you know, uh, and, and have him help shape who you are. But then to find and meet the man and actually get a sense of the man, not the guy that's at the conventions, but the man. Um, and find out that, that, that he's not what you expected and that he's so much warm, warmer uh, and caring and deep and with such a, um, a flair for life. You know, this, this wanting to experience all these things and do all these things and not regret a moment of it. I mean, what an amazing human being. Well, something I noticed was that he has an unquenchable thirst to know more yeah. and understand more. And during this weekend, he was um, he was jumping at the chance to talk to uh, you know various people, everybody, everybody, everybody. And, and learn about them and learn things that he wanted to know and uh, expand his understanding of the universe. Yeah, and you know what? I I really got a sense of how much he appreciates talking to people uh, that he's inspired and doesn't realize that he's inspired them until he talks to them. You know, I, I think over the years he's got this, this, this greater sense of his importance in pop culture as a person, right. you know, through his work, his art. And has become less afraid of that burden. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's, 
I think he's embraced everything. I think he's, I think as he's gotten older, he's gotten a view into that side of things. And he realizes, you know, these people are just like me, you know, but they, they, their love and passion through something I worked on has sent them off into all these great directions and occupations. And I think that really is wondrous to him, uh, you know, that, he, that, that's, that that's happened, you know, off this little lark of a TV show. Well, it's just it, I thank you first of all for uh, letting me come along on this uh, on this voyage and and uh, being able to uh, participate in it because it's just been a wonderful a wonderful thing to do. Well, we tell everybody. I tell everybody. You know, you and I are like brothers from another mother, and and we can see each other. You know, for a, for a visit, and then not see each other for two months, three months, six months, and it's like we were never apart. When you come back, we laugh and we enjoy and we share and it's 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 just uh, so much fun there's nobody i would rather share this experience with than you honestly we have so much fun um it's incredible uh, you want to talk at all about um any future plans of the tour or uh, what oh. what you're thinking about or you know what's what's what are your thoughts as to how this is going to go i really you know it's so strange because again it I never dreamed that we would be doing this. I, you know, I, I, I set out to play Star Trek, and, then, and I guess I'm still doing that. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, as the whole fan film thing began to, I want to say, unwind, you know, there were a lot of outside forces that got into the fan film game that helped really wreck it. Um, and we don't even have to go into that. But uh, probably the last year and a half, um, as you well know, I started to mentally change direction about what I wanted to do. And I, I actually had to look inside myself and ask myself what it was about doing that, the fan film thing that I enjoyed, and it was meeting people. So I hit upon the notion of, of this tour, you know, how could I possibly share it with everybody? It's because it's, I think it's a special thing. Yeah. I think those sets are magical, and I think every, every Star Trek fan needs to be able to, to touch the cloak, if you will. So I, you know, I pitched it to CBS, and here we are, and... Um, I want to see us expand. I really do want to get into Next Generation because I, I, I think it has an audience as diverse and great. You know, I really want to get into that. But um, more than that, I want to I want to continue to build on the original. Um, you know, I want to keep adding artifacts and I want to keep doing different special events. I think that's our niche. You know, we're not we don't do conventions. We do we do personal appearances and things. And I think we offer something that conventions can't offer, and and could never offer. Oh. Well, we were we were uh, at the at the tour yesterday, and uh, you were uh, installing the cage uh, transporter uh, control into the transporter room, and with that, the newest piece of equipment brought to the brought to the tour, just for people to look at and and marvel at. Um, you uh, moved the older uh, transporter control out to to ha be recommissioned and refitted yeah. um, because it's one of the oldest quote artifacts in the tour it and is. it dated back for when you from when you were doing fan films yeah. and it seems to me that this sort of uh, urban renewal <laughs> is um, is something that I, I, I'm sure you get enjoyment out of you, yeah. you get enjoyment out of uh, perfecting uh, the well, tour every every month. Like I told you, you know that that console is twelve, thirteen years old, and we, I know the I know the shapes and everything are correct, but there's small details that 
when we did it, we weren't able to focus on, you know, the way we should have. So now we're going to, we're going to give it the, you know, the upgrade, the Cadillac treatment and, uh, and make it even better than people thought it was great the way it was. But you know me, if it's not quite right, we're going to, we're going to redo it and fix it. So I enjoy, I actually enjoy the detective work. I like looking at the episodes and if we spot something that's a little, you know, if we get more information on something and we can make it even better, we're going to do that. Um, I think we're running out of things to make better, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but we, you know, I'm, we did talk about the cage stuff and we want to bring in more stuff from the pilots and, um, you know, maybe be able to take those things on the road, maybe display them at Las Vegas, you know, for CBS and just generally just have fun and be able to share the hell out of this thing with everybody. Well, that's the, that's the real idea and that's the driving force behind all of this. And I thank you for sharing with me and uh, I hope uh, I'm able to share more with you in the future as well. You know you will. thanks so much james Colley. thanks pal i appreciate it well that was really that was fascinating that was that's it's a you know it's a great interview it's fun and he's he's such a he's you know obviously you got from the interview that we're uh you know compatriots and and uh, we share a brain uh but uh it's uh, just so great that he he has been able to sort of take uh, you know, turn death into a fighting chance to live <laughs> after the after the uh, the the uh, demise of uh, of what we knew as fan films, and turn this into something that is still self supporting and able to still exist in in the world now. You know what my takeaway was? Because we did an episode recently with. Um Doug Drexler, where he talks mm-hmm. about calling up Bob Justman yeah. and then forging a lifelong friendship with Bob. Yeah. I love the story that James tells about um, befriending uh, Bill Tice. Uh, w- Bill Tice. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a great, a great story. And uh, again, you know, how people we respect and admire, how they open them, they pass it down. Yeah. You know, you, you, know paying, you talk about paying it forward. These right. are all people, you know, who could recognize a kindred spirit. And, uh, exactly. you know, I can't say enough about Bill Tice. Unfortunately, sadly, he's, he's one of those people who passed away and doesn't Very get early his on. due yeah. the way that, uh, you know, I mean, other people ha- have. You know, uh, as I think he mentions in the episode, Bill Tice designed the Starfleet Delta. Mm-hmm. And... It's from his little chicken scratches that an entire um, brand yeah. has emerged. Sure, yeah. And it's amazing. And it's from his costume design that an entire adolescence of fantasies ah. emerged <laughs> for me. Yeah, not just adolescent, Rob. <laughs> yeah, because I have to say the, 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 the women of Star Trek uh, and their, the way they were costumed to this day uh, really fueled... Well, I've never seen perfection, but no woman could come closer to it. Unbelievable. Yeah. I remember, it's funny, when Holly Gagnier, who played the Green Orion slave girl in um, Free Enterprise, in our movie Free Enterprise, came uh, and and we had you know, said we wanted something that was you know redolent of right. what she and, and And she came for the wardrobe test. And both of us, I think, were a little surprised because like, it wasn't quite as revealing as we thought and it wasn't, it wasn't quite as sexy as we thought. And, and 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 then we looked at and, and the costume designer was surprised that we didn't like it more, and uh, she showed us from one of the books. It was pretty much the same thing, and we realized our imagination had right. so carried us <laughs> right. beyond what it actually was because it was actually somewhat chaste. But in our minds, it yes. was so much more. Right. And she had done something very accurate. I think we had in our minds something very different. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's it's not that those costumes were were necessarily revealing or or. Well, somewhere, but but what I what I loved about those costumes were there there was a very there was a very strong yet feminine 
bent to what he was doing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't disrespectful. It wasn't it wasn't cheesecake for the sake of cheesecake. I like how someone had described it as they were engineered to look like they would fall off at any moment. Yeah, a slight breeze right. would blow them off. Right. I, I I remember that description. I forget who said it. I don't remember. It may I wish have I been could. Bill Tice, or my, I don't remember who said it. It might have been Roddenberry. It might have been. But it's <laughs> but also not it, just that's to be, exactly what it is. Yeah. They were. Yeah, and not to be lascivious about it, but it was all the costumes, the male right. costumes as Absolutely. well, were were always very interesting the and scant. dynamic. And well, they well they felt no, they they, they felt they felt futuristic and yes. cool. And, and interesting and, and uh, you know even when they did things like jumpsuits when we met and mm-hmm. uh, is what are little girls made of what sure. what they were wearing in that was interesting and it was like you know nothing you'd seen before but it was still familiar in some way right yeah that's that's absolutely true and James will find that fabric he he'll yeah. recreate that stuff exactly yeah yeah that's that's it's great amazing. well. Uh, and I guess he has some some future events because, you, like you said, it's open. Uh, uh, but they also do special events. Absolutely, uh, bar mitzvahs, weddings. But no, they they're, no, they're going to be. You know, you can contact them, and they will host uh, special events. Uh, I think they've had one wedding. They certainly had a uh, um, a wedding proposal there. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, they have the great thing is they have people showing up there every day. Sure, and it's. As as difficult as it is to reach, and it's not easy, believe mm-hmm. me. Right. Um, it's a beautiful drive, though. It's about two hours north of Albany, and uh, but it's a lovely country up there, and it's this tiny little town. Ticonderoga uh, played a very important role in the Revolutionary War. Um, Fort Ticonderoga was built during the French and Indian War, uh, and it was owned by the British. And when the city of Boston was laid siege by the uh, British Navy, uh, there was a small troop of uh, uh, of uh, revolutionaries that went up there and brought the cannons from Fort Ticonderoga down by ox cart and set them up overnight in Boston Harbor and aimed them at the British fleet. And when the British woke up, they saw these guns pointed at them, and they freaked out. They had no idea where this came from. It's one of the greatest stories in the Revolutionary War, and Ticonderoga was a big center to it. You know, it's so funny, these weird synchronicities. But I remember as a, as a young kid, very young, you know, probably six or seven years old, one of my favorite toys, I had a Fort Ticonderoga fort that had <laughs> redcoats and colonial uh, soldiers, and I used to love it. In fact, I looked through eBay and a bunch of things to try and find it for my son uh, uh, because I loved that toy. Yeah. It was so fun, and I've That's never been able so to find funny. it, and it was for Ticonderoga. Yeah. Now, isn't there, for, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but isn't there, the Ticonderoga was an aircraft carrier as well that retrieved either, it was either an Apollo mission or it was Capricorn 1. Right, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just remember fact and fiction are, are, are I just remember, I remember the aircraft carrier, the Ticonderoga, the, or maybe it was the Uriskany. No, it was the, the Uriskany in, in Capricorn, Capricorn One. 1. It was the Kitty Hawk. Was it the Kitty oh, Hawk? Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Not the Uriskany. Okay. So uh, let me ask you, Darren, if, if people are more in, uh, interested in visiting or finding out more about the Star Trek set tour, how can they do that? Uh, go to www.startrektour.com.
Great, great, great. And uh, and I, I guess they're hosting some special guests next year. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, they're still uh, still collating, but uh, they're going to announce some uh, interesting things. Great, and I know some of our friends of the show have been up there. Mike Akuda, mm-hmm. Doug Drexler have hosted tours uh, up there. And I have. And, and of course, you know, well, of course, yeah, you know. it goes without saying. <laughs> um, so, well, listen, thanks for you know taking the time and doing that great interview with uh, James. It was great to... You know, have him on the show via subspace. I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad we could include it on here because I know that he's he's a fan of us as well. Well, that's great. Well, guys, uh, as always, uh, thanks for being here. And uh, just a reminder, you can follow Inglorious Trexperts on Twitter and Instagram at Inglorious Trek, as well as on Facebook, where you can continue the conversation by suggesting show topics and give us feedback on every episode. In addition, if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars at Apple Podcasts. You can hear new episodes of Inglorious Trexperts every Sunday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll be celebrating the legacy of Star Trek The Motion Picture all year long as we uh, count down to the 40th anniversary of Star Trek The Motion Picture on December 7th, 1979-2019. And uh, if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, don't miss uh, our podcast Disco Nights with host Chase Masterson and special guests every week. Uh, All new episodes premiere every Thursday night. And finally, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at the Electric Surge Network for making the show possible. We couldn't do it without you. So until next week, on behalf of Robert Meyer Burnett, Darren Docterman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. Shh! This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.